Welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. This podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. For more information about Library 2.0, not surprisingly, you can go to www.library20.com. My subject and topic for this half hour is not a pleasant one. It's not a fun one to talk about. It is sexual behaviors and sexual crimes in the library. And hopefully this is something you have never seen or had happen in your library, but it certainly happens in other libraries. And something caught my eye, an online article. The title was Man Sentenced to Prison for Sex Act at Library with Minor. Of course, that caught my eye, being a security guy. This comes from a reporter named Ken de Labastide, the Herald Bulletin in Anderson, Indiana. So Anderson, uh, Indiana, I think, is a suburb of... Indianapolis, this is Thursday, March 9th, 2023, and I will read the piece to you. So this is verbatim from the online piece. March 9th, Anderson, an Indianapolis man who entered a plea of guilty to a charge of sexual misconduct with a minor in the Anderson Public Library has received a 12-year sentence. Zebulon Theron Wise, 45, was sentenced Wednesday in Madison Circuit Court Division Three by Judge Andrew Hopper to 12 years in prison with 10 years executed and two years suspended on probation. Wise is also being required to register as a sex offender for life. Deputy Prosecutor Dan Cobb said the plea agreement called for a maximum executed prison sentence of 10 years. According to a probable cause affidavit by an Anderson police officer, Matthew Cobb, I wonder if he's related to the prosecutor. Same spelling of the last name. The incident took place on January 3rd, 2022 at the library. Uh, police were called to the library after a security guard caught Wise engaged in a sexual act with a minor on the second floor mezzanine near the book aisle. The security guard said Wise and the girl ran away after being discovered and Wise was caught by Anderson police officer Chaz Willis inside the library. The girl told police she met Wise on Snapchat and agreed to a date at the library. She said they kissed, and then Wise asked her to engage in a sex act. Wise declined to make a statement to police at the time of his arrest. Okay, so that's a horrible story. I have done a little research about Mr. Wise, and you can find this online if you put his first, uh, middle, and last name in. Zebulon, Z-E-B-U-L-U-N, Theron, T-H-E-R-O-N, Wise, common spelling, W-I-S-E. Um, he was uh, arrested and prosecuted and sent to prison for possession of child pornography back in January of 2013. So here we are a mere 10 years later. He's a registered sex offender in Florida. Now he's going to be a registered sex offender in Indiana. And if you uh, run him in the um, Florida uh, database for uh, sex registrants, he shows up, photo, and discussion of his case. So I've been in threat assessment and threat management, workplace violence prevention for 30 years. And in my world, we talk about the um, past as a predictor, not a perfect predictor, but a predictor of the future. So it is an indicator, certainly, and people go back to their patterns. So here's a guy who uh, was involved in possession of child pornography at some point in his life 10 years earlier when he lived in Florida. Now he's caught uh, with a sex act with a minor in the library in Indiana. Uh, back to prison. So that's all I know about this story, but it just le- led me to think about some of the possibilities in terms of sexual crimes or sexual behaviors, some uh, illegal, some um, consensual, but they may happen in the library because it is a place that people congregate, it is a place that people come to, 
Um, they get perhaps um, privacy that they wouldn't have somewhere else. And so sometimes library staff comes across these types of sex acts, uh, especially the more uh, problematic kind like exposure and things like that at the library from time to time. So that led me to think about kind of the ways that um, sex acts are, are um, described in the penal code and how we prosecute those things and kind of the orientation around some of those things. And I'm also reminded of my colleague Ryan Dowd, who we know is our expert on homelessness in the library and ran a homeless shelter for many years, that one of the things that his staff and he had to do was go outside of the homeless shelter and kick out all the pimps and the people driving by, men especially. Um, They're looking for underaged um, victims or underage prostitutes that, that would be staying at the homeless shelter um, because, you know, they wanted uh, to pay for sex. Or in terms of the pimps, you know, to bring them into a human trafficking uh, lifestyle. So I think that's a possibility in some libraries that, that we may see some not only grooming behavior that we are concerned about from males that want to engage in a um, sex act uh, in terms of pedophilia with a young adult, I mean, young uh, minor, as they're an adult, uh, young minor, uh, um, you know, in terms of their grooming behavior, the library of male or female victims, but also this idea of, of male, or sometimes I've seen it too in my um, cases in San Diego where we have female perpetrators who help male pimps get um, young girls into the um, prostitution lifestyle. So that's another possibility which is concerning and more vigilance again on our part as, as library staffers to pay attention to what seems uh, when you look at it to be an inappropriate kind of intuitive sense that you get about why this person is here or why they're having this conversation with this young child, especially this young female child. So I want to look at some of the things that would constitute sexual crimes in the library um, besides just calling the police. Um, uh, you know, we want to be vigilant about um, um, preventing these things by seeing some of the warning signs that may happen. So let's talk about what some of the possibilities are in, in these disturbing uh, crimes and, and these disturbing incidents. So this list is long and ugly of things that come out of the penal code, and it, it kind of goes from bad to worse. Uh, sexual assault, uh, certainly rape, is, is the highest uh, category uh, of concern. Uh, unwanted sexual uh, um, encounter with someone could be also described as sexual battery. Sexual battery is probably more common in the library. It may have happened to staff members, unfortunately. Sexual battery is when someone uh, makes physical contact with somebody's genitals, grabbing their butt or their breasts uh, or, or their privates um, in, a, in a, not necessarily a sexual way, but in a physically assaultive way. And so this happens as, as um, in kind of a power and dominance thing. Um, it's done by males uh, sometimes to uh, humiliate victims, things like that. could be male or female victims as well, or uh, adults or children. So sexual battery is unwanted contact, unwanted physical contact, grabbing, uh, touching of the genitals or the, the sexual parts of another person. Then we have a, a concept which is in the penal code as well called frottage. And frottage, F-R-O-T-T-A-G-E, is rubbing um, someone's sexual parts against somebody else not necessarily for the purpose of sexual gratification, um, but that's certainly a goal of theirs. And we see these uh, uh, people tell me this happens in subways, crowded subways, buses, uh, trains, things like that, where this happens, where men do this, this type of thing. Then we have something that's pretty common, not only in the library environment, but in, in public places as well, in front of schools and parks, which is exposure. And so this is uh, someone, typically a man. I, I don't think I've ever seen a woman do this um, um, as a thrill that men get. 
um, which is exposing himself to uh, children or exposing himself to other women or just exposing himself to people in general. And this is um, um, what's called a paraphilia. And paraphilias are um, a deviant behavior and para um, meaning um, um, uh, sort of extreme and aphelia is interest in. So a paraphilia is kind of an extreme interest in certain things. So pedophilia is a paraphilia, obviously. And so when we look at exposure, that's oftentimes in my experience as having worked just briefly for San Diego PD as a sex crimes uh, investigator. I did a, a short stint there and registering sex offenders a couple times a week at the PD headquarters. Is that exposure is a, a series of behaviors that oftentimes starts at home and then the person sort of sits in their car and then they go to a public place and sit in their car and maybe someone sees them through the window of the car. And then they get sort of two directions. One is they get more bold about what they want to do. And the other is they, they need more excitement, more stimulation from the act of being caught by somebody. So this is when they show up in front of the high school, the junior high, or they may do this in a public place like the library. Certainly we have talked about this. Um, I did a whole webinar for Library 2.0 about pornography and uh, possession of child pornography. So we have really kind of two issues in the library. One is pornography viewing by males in the library, which could happen on their tablets or phones or your computer screens um, or their laptops. And we've talked about in detail in my discussions of library security about why this happens. It's, it's a puzzle to me why men do this. I get that sometimes they don't have access to Wi-Fi or they do it because they can't do it at their house. Um, but also I think they do it just to be provocative and to irritate people. But then the other side of that coin, uh, you know, concern is child pornography. And, and not always easy to understand and identify, but in, in most cases we know it when we see it, especially if it's the more extreme kind. And, and you know, if we look at the response by patrol officers, uh, in the local PD or sheriff's department may not be enough. And we may need to contact ICAC, I-C-A-C, Internet Crimes Against Children. There are 61 ICAC agencies around the United States. It's typically staffed by forensic specialists, uh, IT specialists, federal prosecutors, state prosecutors, uh, local prosecutors, and, and folks from the FBI, U.S. Marshals, Customs, Border Patrol, uh, NCIS, local PD, local sheriffs, and things like that. And their function is to um, find people that have large quantities of child pornography. This could be overseas or in the United States and arrest and prosecute them. Then we have, um, if we're moving away from sort of the exposure part where the person exposes himself to somebody else, you know, without clothing or just their genitals, uh, we get to another sort of opposite end of that extreme, which is peeping. And we see this a lot in, in, in public places and libraries and things like that where someone will look up the skirts of somebody as a female or they will use a camera to take photographs of someone you know, bending over or the more horrific ones that we have seen uh, around the country is when someone installs, and this has happened in Starbucks and in locker rooms and in showers and things like that, a hidden camera uh, inside a, a restroom, a public restroom or something like that. This has been done by employees. It's been done by customers. Um, they do this at, at, you know, changing areas in, in clothing stores and the shopping malls and things like that. So there is a sort of whole um, kind of industry of these types of cameras that people use to, to um, take photographs of, of people changing clothes or going to the bathroom. That's the peeping part. And the peeping part, especially from a sex crimes um, sort of escalation perspective, is another concern to me when I look at the exposure part of it, which is someone exposes themselves to... Um, um, 
you know, a group of people or kids or somebody in high school or girls that, you know, are walking home or at the bus stop or something like that or at the library is that their behavior escalates sometimes to, I want to do this inside someone's house. And that's called a hot prowl burglary. And oftentimes the hot prowl burglar uh, escalates to become the rapist inside the house because the, the movement of going from the, exposing himself from the streets to someone's home is, is a pretty dramatic and frightening one. So when we look at the peeping part, um, this happens in neighborhoods where people are, are looking out you know, their window and they see some guys you know, standing in the bushes, sometimes you know, engaged in sexual behaviors, somebody's just watching them through their window of their house. And so this is a concern not only at the library, but in our neighborhoods as well. And again, I look at it as an escalating behavior, which is a concern. We talked about uh, the prostitution element where people are either finding, um, um, trying to groom uh, young girls or sometimes uh, young boys into prostitution in the library environment or in a public, uh, you know, park environment or bus station or wherever they find these kids. And then also the, you know, the, the scourge of human trafficking, which is that people are smuggled into this country for those types of purposes besides physical labor and agricultural labor and things like that. So the pimping and, and pandering or, or establishing a prostitution um, um, trafficking inside a public place like that where there's a lot of interaction with you know, other adults is why some of these folks may use the library. And then prostitution in general, where prostitutes come into the library and, and engage in sex acts with customers because they can get access to the restroom or they can find some secluded place where, where there's not staff to see or, or certainly the police. And then if you look at um, the age difference issue when it comes to sexual uh, interactions between adults and, and children or adults and minors, there's kind of a rule, and I'm not sure how uh, pervasive it is around the United States, but in, when I was in California, the rule was really um, a 10-year gap in the age between the victim and the suspect. So we have a 26-year-old a man and a 16-year-old girl. That, that, that's somebody's getting arrested for, for um, uh, child abuse, sexual child abuse. So, you know, the... the the 18-year-old boy and the 17-year-old girl or the 18-year-old girl and the 17-year-old boy does not usually get the attention of prosecutors around this country. But this idea of the 10-year gap in age between the, the adult perpetrator and the, and the child victim is usually what, what they pay attention to. 24-year-old man, 14-year-old girl, or, or you know, 22-year-old boy, or 22-year-old man, 12-year-old boy is things that, that get their attention in terms of prosecution. And then... We have um, a, a kind of a, a, a lesser issue, and it's sort of a sexual exposure thing, which is teenagers making out and, you know, people having sex in public or adults having sex in public, teenagers or adults. Uh, this is, you know, a, a behavior which is it's consensual, and they do it because it's a thrill to do in a public place. And maybe they care that they are, they don't care that they are seen, or they do, but but they don't have much sort of, uh, concerns about where they are, and it Im impacts certainly the, the shock value of people in the library, and it's disturbing to think about that that's what they want to do there. So I think part of that issue is, again, staff vigilance, which says, I pay attention as I walk around and I see things, and I get kind of a sense that, that these interactions between these adults and children, or these two adults, or these two teenagers, is appropriate and reasonable and normal and no issues and not anything un unethical or illegal going on. Or I want to make sure that I interrupt that opportunity by just coming over and say, hey, you know, uh, how, how can I help you today? What brings you in the library? Um, I'll be right over there if you need me. Um, that's kind of a, a phrase that I oftentimes think about 
in any kind of service vigilance, service security kind of a thing, which is, hey, if you have any questions, I'll be over here, which means I'm watching you. And I have suggested this as a possibility for the um, uh, discussions I have had in Library 2.0 programs about theft, theft behavior in, in the library, where um, oftentimes we see this casing behavior where the person wants to seal something, whether it's um, a book or a DVD or a laptop or someone's cell phone or some other piece of equipment that's expensive and valuable. And, and we can interrupt that kind of casing approach by saying, hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, what was your name, sir? And, and they go, oh, and they run out and leave or they, they walk away. Uh, or they make some sort of dumb comment like, oh, I wasn't looking at anything. And, and you kind of know that you've interrupted that theft opportunity. And what happens there is we're trying to um, at least plant the seed that we can't be everywhere and see everything, but we have noticed them and we are vigilant about what they are staring at or what they're looking at. So, you know, I, I don't think we have to be the behavior police in the library, certainly, but we do have to pay attention to problematic, potentially problematic behaviors, especially sexual behaviors that could happen between two people that want to do something in the library that sounds exciting and fun and maybe stimulating for them, but not, not what we want them to do inside the library environment, including the restrooms and things like that. So, you know, looking at the other scale of, of horrible possibilities, we have uh, sexual contact, sexual battery, sexual assault of a disabled person. Uh, that's somebody who may be in, you know, uh, developmentally disabled who is sexually assaulted by somebody in the library. Um, it could be a group of kids that do that, sexual battery to a, to a female or a boy. It could be um, um, sexual contact with somebody who's disabled, again, against their will because they can't protect themselves, somebody in a wheelchair or something like that. So again, we, we, we go back to the sense of do we see people who have the potential in our library to be victims, right? It could be elderly, it could be, could be kids, it could be really small children, it could be that, you know, people that have physical or, or uh, developmental disabilities. And then we look at potential perpetrators. It's just, you know, is there a sense of a group of kids that, that seem like they want to harm or target or bully or touch or, 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 or injure uh, another child? And then we look at this grooming behavior uh, amongst adults, especially adult males. Um, women engage in, in sexual abuse of children, but it's usually at the behest of their boyfriend or their, or their husband or somebody that they're trying to you know, win over in, in their relationship. Uh, they don't want to do it, but they do it because they want to keep this, this horrible guy. So, uh, you know, vigilance on our part is looking at these situations and saying, well, you know, can we, can we use our camera systems? Can we use vigilance and walking around? Can we talk to each other about what may be problematic? Can we warn each other about certain types of past behaviors that we've seen in the library that we want to identify? Can we talk to our, our, our picks, our, our managers, supervisors, and directors about problematic people doing problematic things? That are related to these issues, so that we create a safe environment, and we create an environment people feel comfortable going to in you know throughout the community where these types of things don't happen inside the library. One of the things I was looking at in the California Penal Code, uh, 288.4 of the California Penal Code, is arranging to meet with a minor uh, that's typically under the age of 14, uh, even though minors is is you know 17 and below. Uh, but the Penal Code statute arranging to meet with a minor for the purposes of sexual act is is a crime. And so, you know, if you've ever watched that old show from the old days, you know, Catch a Predator, uh, that guy was always, you know, catching these, these guys in that, that house that they would set up. And, and we, we see this kind of behavior happen all the time, especially because of social media and how people have these hookup sites and things like that. So using the library as a place to meet for, for a sexual act is kind of what happened to the guy who first talked about this, Zebulon uh, Wise in Indiana. So let's look at some of the other issues that are kind of related to this, this sexual behavior in the library. And 
kind of back to a, a sense of intuition that you have about what seems right or what seems doesn't doesn't right. What seems like this encounter between an adult male and a child who does not know this person, does not have a familiar relationship and, and just seems to be striking of a conversation would seem unusual to you. And this grooming behavior is oftentimes they target kids that, that, that are, have been bullied. They target kids that have disabilities. They target kids that are shy. They target kids that are uh, shunned by other children. They target kids that, that don't seem to have adult supervision around them. They target kids that are runaways. They target kids that come into the library because they have no place else to be. And so they spend this grooming time uh, in, in a pretty um, um, thorough conversation to try to win this child over. Uh, in terms of trust, and that's that's when they begin the sexual abuse. So, you know, I, I hate to to pin everything on adult males, but that's typically sex crimes wise um, how things happen in the world and who the perpetrators are. So it's uh, a number of things for us besides vigilance and intuition. It's camera systems, good ones, that can spot problematic. Um, areas in the library that are not, not well lit, that don't have good camera views, that you may need to kind of have extra vigilance in terms of walking around. And really, for me, I, I've always gone back, especially site security surveys, and I just did two uh, in Los Angeles uh, for libraries last week, is, is sight lines. You know, what, what can, can we see in terms of removing obstacles? Displays and plants and shelves and half shelves and carts and furniture. And, and things that make it difficult for us to see from point A to point B, especially in corners, uh, hiding places, you know, not only for, for kind of security vigilance, but making sure that, you know, people don't fall down there, little kids don't get, get stuck over in a certain part of the library. And, and you know, removing the, the, the obstacles to the sight lines, but not replacing them with those goofy convex mirrors. I oftentimes see these when I go to libraries, they'll, they'll put a, a mirror, one of these big, you know, four-foot diameter convex mirrors up in the corner. And they go, well, we, we have this here so we can see what's happening in the corner or to prevent people from running into each other as they come around a blind corner. I'm like, yeah, except the quality of the image is horrible. You can't see anything that's going on there. So, so good camera systems catch a lot of stuff. And, 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 and creating a sightline environment where we can see around things and see through things that we've set up that and make the visibility easier is, is certainly going to be helpful. And then I, I guess a lot of this too and comes uh, around the idea of sexual behavior in restrooms. This could be um, homeless people. It could be people that sneak in there kind of like the Mile High Club on an airplane. Kind of like um, um, somebody who may be brought into that environment um, perhaps against their will and sexually assaulted in the restroom. So uh, again, you know, I've always said that my best choice in terms of restroom security is that we have two same-sex staff members do a staff check, and that's what we say, staff check, you know, everybody okay? Just pop their head in, don't have to come all the way inside the, the restroom, just to make sure that everybody's okay. We do this on an irregular basis so that people um, don't get a sense that there's a pattern, whether it's security guards that do this or, or library staff that do this. There's not an obvious pattern where every hour we do it or something like that, but but paying attention to those, those concerns that we have about restrooms being used for any kind of illegal um, uh, purpose, especially sexual violence, is, is what we want to pay attention to. And then the other part of that is, is, are we using good, and this is important for me as a security guy, are we using good access control for those rooms in our library that need to stay locked? And that's training room, it's, it's a computer lab, it's a, a, a learning area, it's where we do our our um, uh, literacy classes or something like that, that room is locked until it needs to be used. Or that staff 
um, is is paying attention as to who comes and goes into certain rooms that we have, genealogy or whatever happens to be, that that we're not leaving that room unattended and unviewed for long spans of time. But certainly that we don't want anybody using, for sexual purposes or any other purpose, um, any unlocked parts of our, our building that should be locked up. This is break room, restrooms, you know, employee restrooms or storage area, file rooms, places we store the, you know, the, the mops and the cleaning equipment, things like that, utility rooms that have our, our server systems or our telephones, things like that. We don't want anybody getting into any part of the library that is for staff only or should be kept secure as a room which, which is not being used uh, while the library is open and needs to be kept locked. And sometimes we forget that stuff and we, we go, uh, let me check this door here, just make sure it's locked and find out it's been you know, open for the last three days. And so I'm, I'm big on key cards, I'm big on, on key card access and, and using hard keys and replacing or exchanging or repairing door locks that don't seem to work as well. They're old or they're cipher locks that you have to push the buttons, those are notoriously you know, mechanically uh, faulty, that we get good uh, um, focus on door locks for our unused rooms and that we we pay attention to who is going into specific rooms uh, just like we would have a children's librarian in the children's library room you know a big big room part of the library so that's fine um, but if we have people using other parts of our our building that are specific rooms for certain things that we pay attention to what's happening in there that could be through camera systems it could be through staff paying attention so one of the things that comes up in and I, I'm not an expert on this because I'm not a lawyer, but, but one of the things that comes up is, is sometimes we will discover that somebody coming into the library, and this happens a lot, and I've seen it not only in libraries but other places. Someone coming into the library will engage in what seems to be odd or creepy behavior or just concerning behavior or, or it kind of triggers the intuition of staff or especially, and I've seen this a lot, but the, the women in the room that are moms with their kids. And they'll find out this person's name, either through the staff or they'll have a, you know, a way to kind of discover who this person is. And they'll run him in the um, sexual registrant database for the particular state, right? And all 50 states have one. It's based on Megan's Law. And they'll find out the guy's a, a, um, on the sexual registrant list. He's a sex offender. And, and they get outraged. And they want this guy out of the library. And he should not be allowed in here. And there's a couple things that, that may, uh, uh, may help that happen, a couple things that may not. The one that helps that happen is if the guy's on geographic probation, which means he's not allowed to go to churches where kids are or schools where kids are or public parks or swimming pools or libraries where, where children or women congregate, that may be part of his geographic probation. Some of these guys are what's called SVPs or sexually violent predators, and they have really specific strict um, um, probationary or parole guidelines put onto their sex uh, registration process. Now, we don't always know that, but it could be captured in the... Um, the database. But the, the more likely part is the, the person, in the, the guy in question, has been registered as a sex offender. And, and you know, if you've, you've seen these registrations, they're for life. And, and, you know, if you are convicted of a certain, and there's, there's tier levels of, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three type of uh, seriousness of sex crimes as to how long you have to register for, but for the most part, it's for life. And so, you know, where I've seen this, where people get super outraged is, is you, we, we can bar this person from the library. And if the answer is we don't have geographic probation or geographic parole restrictions, we cannot. Um, the, the function of the, the sex crimes database is, is kind of complex because what it says is, here are the people in our neighborhood, guys, 
who are sex registrants, but you can't use this to deny them housing or credit, or you cannot use this to deny them certain jobs. Now they can't, you know, they, they can't get a job as a school bus driver. That that makes sense, but you know, you can't bar them from working at a convenience store or a or a, you know a restaurant or something like that. So I, I had a case in California where uh, one of my clients got sued. Um, they were an apartment complex, and the, the the property managers got sued as well as the apartment owner because some of the women that lived in the apartments got a creepy vibe off of this guy. They ran him in the, he was the maintenance guy, the maintenance janitor for the apartment complex, big apartment complex. They, they ran him and found that he was in the sex uh, registrant list. Um, that was not asked of him as whether or not he had any criminal convictions in his, in his job interview, which is a mistake. And they fired the guy. And he got a lawyer and said, you cannot use this to discriminate against me. And this is California, maybe different where you are. Uh, but, but for the most part, you cannot use uh, the presence of my client being on a sex registrant list as a reason to discriminate against him in the hiring process or discipline or termination, terminate him because he's on this list. And that's what happened. The guy got his job back. So with, with, with um, you know, uh, money that had to be paid out by the insurance company for his pain and suffering, whatever that was. So when we look at situations where someone in the library, either a staff member who has done the research or a, a, a patron who has done the research about somebody who's in there to say, this, this guy's on the sex registrant list and I want him out of here and I'm going to make a scene and I'm going to call the cops. There may not be things we can do. And there, if he does not have geographic probation or, or, or parole about this issue, he cannot particularly be barred from the library. So uh, it's, it's a complex issue because what we're trying to create in our society, and this is sort of the weird, weird trade-off, is a warning system for the community about sex offenders. But then again, we also have language built into the database which says you can't discriminate against them for certain issues, credit, insurance, housing, renting an apartment, getting, a, getting most jobs. So if you have those situations where you um, are confronted by a patron who says, I know this person's on the sex uh, uh, database here, the sexual offender database, and is a sex registrant, I want him out of here. Um, I think you have to have a conversation with your, your uh, library attorneys, whoever provides legal services to you, and say, what's the statute say in our, 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 our state for this? And what does is, what is court case precedent say about these types of things if we cannot um, demonstrate this person is a danger to our, our library patrons, other patrons, or his behavior has been problematic, um, you know, it's of a sexual nature and it's problematic or violent or criminal in here. If that's not happening, can we kick this person out? And the answer usually, I think, is going to be no without this geographic probation in place. So when we look at the complexity of these issues, what we're trying to do is, is again, this balance that we want to create a safe library. We want people to be able to come in here who have had you know, I guess let's say a checkered past and, and been in jail or prison for their sex crimes but have not, um, um, you know, because they've been let out on probation or parole and have not been given these geographic restrictions, they're allowed to be in society. And, you know, there's a big argument among social scientists, and I've had, it, I've, I've had this discussion with some of them who have pinged me uh, after uh, various and sundry trainings or podcasts where we talk about sex offender databases that, you know, there's no, there's no perfect proof that these people recidivate and there's no perfect proof that these sex offender databases work. And it's, it's not an ideal situation to give this person the stigma for the rest of their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, okay, uh, in California, for example, we've been registering sex offenders since like 1947. In the 40s, they started registering sex offenders, narcotic addicts, that was the word, and usually heroin addicts, and arsonists. 
right? Looking at the recidivism rate of, of, of arsonists, uh, um, heroin addicts, and sex offenders. And that started back in the 40s in California. So it's not a new thing that, that this database registration process has happened. I would always say, if you are confronted by angry, one or more angry uh, patrons, especially uh, women or even staff members, who say, I, you know, I don't want this guy in the library. We've got to get some advice as to whether or not it's possible to ask this person to leave. And my guess is usually, unless there are other restrictions, it is not. So as I think about this concept, let's be vigilant. Let's let people enjoy the library, but let's not put anybody in a situation where we um, um, miss our intuition and we miss an opportunity to intervene through a casual or even a pointed conversation, like you can't do that if you want to stay here, you're not allowed to do these behaviors, you can't make out in our library, you've got to leave. Um, if we see consenting children or consenting, I mean teenagers, I mean consenting adults do these types of things. If we get a sense of grooming behavior, whether it's, it's pedophile grooming behavior or, or it's uh, pimping, um, human trafficking issues that we call the cops, so we call the human trafficking hotline for the United States, which is run by the Department of Homeland Security. And, and give them as much information as we have and say, you know, these are things that our staff is seeing and that are concerning to us. So complicated issue, not a fun issue to talk about, but part of our subject here today. Thanks for listening to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. For more information about Library 2.0 and Steve Harganon, the founder of Library 2.0, visit library20.com. See you next time.